Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Andrew Wilson. Welcome to The Crucible. Tonight, I have Dr. E. Michael Jones coming on to do a debate review with his debate with Jared Taylor. I have a lot of questions for him. I'm sure a lot of you do, too. It was one of the better debates um, that I've seen in, uh, in probably several years. So I'm going to go ahead and bring on Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, how are you doing tonight? Good, good. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties right. last time, but it looks like uh, that's all under control. So I was uh, uh, just briefly going to allow you to introduce yourself and uh, maybe uh, plug your latest book, Lib Libido Dominandi. Yes. Um, my name is E. Michael Jones. I started off in life wanting to be a professor of American literature, got a job at St. Mary's College uh, in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, got fired one year later for opposing abortion. Uh, the feminists had taken over the college, and I discovered political correctness uh, way ahead of everyone else. Uh, at that point, I decided to get out of academia, got into publishing, started a magazine called Fidelity, which is now called Culture Wars Magazine. And over the course of the last, it will be 40 years I've been doing this magazine in December. 40 years in one of the most... Uh, unreliable professions in the world. Magazines go out of existence uh, very quickly. So uh, over that period of time, I've also published a number of books. Um, you mentioned one of them, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, which got, uh, I wrote it about 20, 25 years ago, and it got a lot of notice uh, in 2019 with the uh, NoFap November movement, the, the uh, uh, movement against porn, uh, boycotting porn. Uh, it provided an explanation of the real purpose of porn for a lot of people, and that helped them uh, kick the habit. Uh, since then, we have brought out the second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, three volumes, uh, 1,800 uh, pages. Uh, new material, 600 pages of new material after the first edition, which came out about 13 years ago. And uh, after that, Logos Rising uh, came out a year ago, A History of Ultimate Reality, a book that is taking on new meaning uh, in the Islamic world in light of the whole uh, collapse of the American empire in Afghanistan. And there's going to be a civil war. And it's already started. That bombing was uh, ISIS fighting with the Taliban. And this book is becoming relevant in that area, uh, relevant throughout the world. And I'm currently working, we're finished a book on art, aesthetics, uh, the dangers of beauty, the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. And that will be out at some time, uh, probably by the end of the year. So that pretty much pretty covers, covers it. it. <laughs> well, I'll just to give you some background, when I watched that debate live, I watched it on a show called Red Pill Gaming, uh, which you can find over on Trovo. Uh, a lot of people there who were big fans of Jared Taylor. And uh, I think I was the only one in the crowd who was rooting for Dr. Jones. <laughs> I found the uh, the entire debate to be completely fascinating. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up, which we had kind of gotten into last time, just before we got and cut off. One of the most interesting things I thought you brought up was the how you believe that race is a construction of the mind. Right. And I really, really wanted you to dive in to how it's a construction of the mind and why it is we've kind of all been fooled into this uh, uh, kind of mindset by by some certain elites that this is not just a construction of the mind. 
Yeah, uh, Jared began his uh, segment of the debate by posting a picture. It was, I think it was about six pygmy women in Africa, must have been the early 20th century, and standing next to him is a real tall Englishman in a pith helmet. And the, uh, and the, the, the opening ploy is basically, oh, there's no difference between these people, is there? Oh, well, then race is, race is real, right? Well, the point I'm trying to make here is, Look, obviously, there's a difference between those pygmy women and uh, this tall English anthropologist. Of course, there's a difference. But that, that's a category of reality. The, the color of your skin, the shape of your nose, the kind of hair you have, that's all real. I'm not denying that. That's biology. Okay? But what, what you're trying to do is impose on that category of reality a category of the mind. And that category of the mind is known as race. And once you do that, you start adding value judgments, okay? And so before, at the beginning of this whole era, which it began, the first time the word white gets used, applied to people in the English language, is a play by Thomas Middleton, and I think it was 1609, which is right around the time that the Virginia tobacco colony got started. And you had two groups of workers. You had uh, uh, indentured slaves from uh, Great Britain, and you had chattel slaves from Africa. And they wanted to divide the workforces, so they started talking, emphasizing white versus black. At that point, white was good and black was bad. But now we have critical race theory, which is, accepts the same type of categories, and they just reverse the polls. So white is bad and black is good, but you're still saying the same thing. You're applying value judgments to biological facts. That's what I mean by saying you're imposing a category of the mind on a category of reality. Okay. The other example I gave was Donald Trump voters. That's a category of reality. You can find them. You can look up the voter rolls. You can they have names and addresses. Okay. That's a category of reality. Hillary Clinton described these people as a basket of deplorables. We're talking about the same group of people, but what we're talking about with Hillary Clinton's statement is a category of the mind that contains value judgments that she is using as a type of verbal warfare to discredit people she doesn't like. That's the distinction I tried to make at the beginning of the debate. Can these, can these categories of the mind as social constructions become a reality that we deal with even though they're not actually real? No, they, no, are, they are real. real. This is what I said. Like I said, the 24-hour day is a category of the mind. You can have a 25-hour day. You can impose this category on the rotation of the earth. Does that mean because this is a category of the mind, there's no difference between night and day? No, of course not. They are real in the sense that people create them. People create fictions. I held up a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah. That's a... That's a piece of fiction. Uh, it's a fiction. Okay, there was never an Uncle Tom. It ex it, but it, this is a piece of fiction. It exists as what it is. Okay? All you have to, I'm just saying you have to accept it for what it is. Obviously, race is a category that has now been weaponized across the board in the United States of America. Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, all of these things are weaponizations of a category of the mind, but we have to keep in mind that it's a category of the mind. It's not based on what Jared Taylor says it's based on. It's not based on biology. It's not. That's the difference that he simply can't make. 
<clears throat> I, uh, I really couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one of the things that I, I had as a critique uh, with Jared Taylor's opening on uh, race, he really didn't get into IQ that much, which, which kind of surprised me. And he kind of went more with genetic markers to determine origins. And he didn't really address what differences he thought were fundamentally divisive between what he calls races as a construction. And that, that kind of surprised me, uh, especially the fact that the only thing that I can really think of that you could see as being really divisive between races would be IQ. I can't really think of anything else that would be very divisive. And that's highly contested, isn't it? Yes, it is. First of all, IQ is, we don't say good and bad anymore, but IQ is another word. Intelligence is another word for good. That's what you're saying. You're smuggling value judgments here and based on standardized testing. Now, in a sense, I'm glad he didn't bring it up because that is a whole can of worms all unto itself. And it would basically be, we need a whole debate just to talk about IQ. But to get into it, uh, I think the best place to begin with that is uh, Nicholas Lemon's book, The Big Test, which is a, a really perceptive examination of standardized testing to begin with. And that allows you to address the whole history of this thing and understand uh, the different that why how it was used, how it was weaponized. The shorthand of all this is basically if you if you select out for family, for example, the whole difference between uh, black and white IQ disappears. It just disappears. Now he's going to contest that, you know, and okay, I understand you're going to contest that, but if we're going to do that, we really should have a whole debate on, on IQ and, and not confuse the issue by bringing it into this one. So I, I agree. It was a smart move on his part not to bring it in. Yeah. I, in, in some ways I wish that, that he had, um, because when I, when I talk to what I would call race realists, I agree with them instantly the same way that you do, that of course there's physiological differences between human beings in different areas. We all know that this is a, like you say, an objective reality. But the only thing that they can ever really explain to me that they consider to be a divisive thing that really separates the peoples is the IQ. And I really uh, think that that is something that needs to be addressed uh, at some point, either if it's in a follow-up debate with you and Mr. Taylor or not. But um, I, I, really, I really had kind of hoped that that might come up and it really just uh, just didn't. And I agree that it was probably a smart tactic on his part. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to address with you uh, was in the second half of the debate. And that's the part where I really think you came out swinging hard <laughs> and uh, and really, really got him good. Uh, but you had made kind of some some allegations that I hadn't heard before. And so <laughs> I went and checked them out. Uh, how did how did you come across all of that? I did an article in 2007 uh, basic on John Sharp, who was the publisher uh, 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 and uh, had gone. To, John Sharp was in the Navy at the time. He published a book called Neocond, uh, which got him in trouble with the Navy. And he went to uh, uh, an American Renaissance conference to flog his book. Okay, okay, that's good. Good idea. And then it, this was used against him in the whole attack on him and his publishing house. Well, I looked into it. Well, the, the American Renaissance is praised basically by the Southern Poverty Law Center. I can't think of anything more damning than being praised by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And here he is. Uh, why are they praising him? Well, because 
He thinks Jews are white. He, he, he's got this American Renaissance operation that brings Jews into the whole operation, doesn't want to criticize Jews, and then what we'll do is you will knight against black people. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's take a step back here, okay? The Jews have been involved in weaponizing the race issue ever since the Leo Frank lynching. They never forgave the South for doing that. They created institutions like uh, the Anti-Defamation League, which is a terrorist money laundering operation to this day. To this day, the main cause of people getting deplatformed on the Internet is the ADL uh, and uh, the NAACP. They created National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Well, uh, one of the colored people that was interested in this was Marcus Garvey, the great black nationalist from Harlem during the 1920s. He went to NAACP headquarters and couldn't find any black people. It was all Jewish lawyers. It's a Jewish operation that was created to create race war. It's that simple, create race war uh, and overthrow the regime in the South out of revenge for uh, what they did to Leo Frank. All of this came out in my research into the John Sharp article, and I simply brought it back in to deal with it because I think it's completely relevant. This, this, this is my plea to the white boys. Okay, do you know who you're working for here? I mean, this is a guy who is basically using race to control you. And they also, in the same thing, same SPLC uh, uh, article, they said, well, Jared Taylor's like William F. Buckley. He's going to he's going to mobilize just as Buckley Buckley excluded anti-Semites from the conservative movement. Now Jared Taylor is going to exclude him from the race movement. Well, the point of this is he's setting you up for the fall because he's the guy. I, I, I use the image a number of times, but basically he's the guy who sand, handed out spears to the white boys and told them to charge the machine gun nest that you're doing the white boys, no favors by doing that. And the classic example of that was Charlottesville where they all charged the machine. Gun. They, they went there thinking they had the right to speak free speech and the right to assemble. What they found out is that does not apply to people who identify as white. It doesn't apply anymore. White people have no rights. They have no rights. And Jared Taylor knows this, and in spite of the fact he's still uh, encouraging these people to ch charge the machine gun nest. What do I mean by the machine gun nest? I mean a Jewish lawyer by the name of Roberta Kaplan. She gets money, she raises money by making life miserable for the people who went to Charlottesville uh, thinking they had the right to free speech and the right to assembly. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, that's really, it's absolutely incredible uh, when you when you see those connections, especially, I didn't, I had no idea. And as we watched this debate live, uh, we were all kind of stunned. And uh, uh, I don't think anybody had really uh, said any of this type of stuff about uh, American Renaissance as an organization or uh, kind of the, the backdrop that was there with Jared Taylor. And to kind of watch you expand on that was... Uh, was pretty interesting, especially during during a live debate. One of the things that he was constantly uh, seemed to be really hammering you on was that you were some type of uh, denialist, and uh, you just absolutely didn't believe that there was 
any type of, of race at all. And that's really, I think, a mischaracterization and a misrepresentation of your position, because what it sounds to me like you're really saying is, of course, there's physiological differences between people. But what we perceive as race is what you're calling this category of the mind. Right. And right. that, yeah, and that is really uh, what I what I glean from that. And I think that it's really, really difficult for young men. Uh, they've been beaten over the head with uh, with racialism for about the last 40 years. And I think that they're having a really difficult time at this point separating what's a category of the mind uh, from what are physical realities. Right. And I right. wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. 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 So, so basically, like, tell me the meaning of your nose. Well, what they're saying hey. is <laughs> your nose has meaning. If you have this kind of nose, you're going to act in a certain way. And if you have this kind of nose, you're going to act in another way. This is preposterous. And the, and the problem here is nobody talks to the people, these people, other than people like themselves. It's a kind of enclosed, uh, hermetically sealed off from reality little club. Little and bubble. That's, it's a little bubble. And I think that's the what they want because they need some type of consolation from each other because it's true. They are being attacked. It's true. It and is. they're being attacked as white people. That's true. Yep. But I'm saying that doesn't mean that you're white. And I'm trying to say that the crucial turning point came in 1954 with the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus School Board, which made race an official category of the legal system of the United States of America. I mean, it's always been an official category. It's in the Constitution. So nothing really changed that regard. But in 54, uh, the other event was the publication of Will Herberg's book, Protestant Catholic Jew, which proposed the alternative uh, to racial division, and that's called ethnic identity. And I, this is sophisticated. It takes a little sophistication because America's different than, let's say, Tanzania, okay, where uh, you can be a, a Luya or a Kikuyu simply because of your language. That's the state of nature, basically. You have tribes, they have their own language, and that's the group you belong to. They are racially indistinguishable from each other. There's no difference between a Hutu and a Tutsi racially but yet they fight each other. Why is that? Is one secretly white on the inside? Is that what's going on here? That's a, um, would you would you say that that's more of an ethnicity issue where the, the two tribes aren't getting along has nothing to do with race at all? Absolutely. Yeah. History, history is littered with ethnic conflict. And sure. so originally, uh, Frode Mityord, the head of the Scansa Forum, scheduled this debate for Zagreb, and I really wanted to go to Zagreb. I can't think of a better place on earth to hold a debate like this because, Jared, you're going to have to explain to me the racial differences between Croats and Serbs. Can you explain that to me? Well, you can't because there's no racial difference whatsoever between one of the longest standing conflicts in history the conflict in the Balkans between the Serbs and the Croats. And that conflict is based, it's not based on language. They say the same language. The alphabet's different. It's based on religion. And I, this, I didn't understand this until I did the book on Medjugorje and Yugoslavia, where I realized, wait a minute, America is Yugoslavia. It's the same thing. We have three ethnic groups in America based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, after three generations, no matter where you come from. Yugoslavia, same thing. 
three ethnic groups based on three religions, Serb, Croat, Muslim, Orthodox, Catholic, Muslim. That's the same thing. It suddenly opened my eyes. Do you think that the reason that so many people have been categorized as being white, which is a very obscure thing that nobody can even agree on, as you are rightly pointing out, you, you think that the reason for this is so that uh, people who are in that category can be more easily attacked as a whole? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I brought up the example of St. Louis a year ago. There was this is the the wave of iconoclasm that swept through the United States in the wake of the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, demonstrations, and a guy by the name of Umar Lee, who started off in life as a white boy, and then became black when he went to high school because hanging around with all these black guys, and then he became a Muslim. So he's kind of like a a, a, a man with a, an ongoing identity crisis here. And as a Muslim, he announces that he wants to tear down the statue of St. Louis in St. Louis. Well, wait a minute. What's this got to do with slavery? <laughs> St. Louis was a saint in France in the 13th century. What's that got to do? Well, it turns out that he burned the Talmud, so the Jews don't like him. And it turns out, oh, wait a minute. Omar's working for the Jews. He didn't tell us that. He kept to use this Muslim as a, as a cover for that, for that alliance. But the, 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 so but what, he, what was the tactic? The tactic is identity theft. So all of those people who want to preserve the statue, they're all standing there praying the rosary. And, and Umar says, oh, they're white supremacists. Well, wait a minute. White supremacists don't pray the rosary. They were Catholics. But Umar knew he couldn't win that battle if he fought against Catholics. So he had to call them white supremacists because if, they, if he could make that stick, that form of identity theft stick, he would win automatically because white supremacists have no rights whatsoever. And the statue would have come down. I, I absolutely agree uh, that that's true. And the statue would have come down. One of the challenges that I have when I'm talking to young men on this particular subject, there's massive amounts of resistance because as you have just rightly pointed out, the categorization of white is there so that these people can be attacked as a large group easily. Uh, when I when I try to kind of flesh this this style of argument out, uh, one of the largest amounts of, of resistances that I get on it is that uh, I'm selling out, that uh, um, you know I'm I'm being a, a stupid progressive and I'm uh, abandoning my uh, my right leaning conservative principles, and I think that this is so ingrained now in people's minds. I don't know what the tactic is to try to move them off of it. Have you found any success with that? Well, I, I, the main point I'm trying to make here is that ethnicity is a category of reality and yeah. race is a category of the mind. Now, the pro there's a problem here. And I think that we can address, address it best by talking about Frody, Frody Mitjord, young, younger than, than I am, a man who's a Norwegian who was baptized a Lutheran. Well, isn't that your identity? That seems like an identity enough to me. Uh, but what happened over this period of time is the Lutheran church evaporated as the state church, state religion in Scandinavia, and in Norway, and also in England. Protestantism just evaporated during this period of time, certainly as a physical force, certainly as the state church in Scandinavia. It evaporated. And as soon as that happened, Frodi had an identity crisis because he didn't know what he was. 
And at this point, he adopted white as compensation for his identity crisis. Now, I'm saying that's typical of what happened here during this period of time. First of all, I think that uh, white boys are basically Protestants who don't go to church anymore. Okay, then you (laughs) you add to that fact uh, the ethnic situation in the United States of America. So I'm biracial. I'm half German and I'm half Irish. Okay, at least I know where I came from. Now, my my wife uh, goes back, her stock goes back farther than mine. She was uh, uh, an Episcopalian. uh, uh, And she's, it's harder to identify. The longer you stay here, so you have, I have grandchildren uh, who are uh, Russian, Tatar, German, Irish, and then all of the, the mix that came in through my wife, okay? Well, how can you identify as ethnically when normally ethnic means, okay, a Mexican, for example, or a, a recent immigrant? That's part of the problem here. It's a problem in America, and that's the problem that the triple melting pot solved because obviously there's going to be intermarriage once you come over here. The other obvious thing is you lose your language, which is the primary ethnic marker. And so what they're saying is religion is what remains. Well, I tell I, the bad news is religion doesn't remain either. Uh, over this period of time, let's say 54 to the present, we're talking about almost uh, 70 years now, what happened is that uh, religion evaporated, and over the same period of time, you had social engineering, which was responsible for destroying ethnic identity, the ethnic neighborhoods, which I discuss in Slaughter of Cities, uh, basically destroying these people's identity, creating pseudo-identities like uh, consumer items based on consumer riders, like Harley-Davidson. If there were ever a pseudo-ethnic group, it's Harley-Davidson riders. And also... Identity politics, which became the policy of the Democratic Party, which means, okay, we'll give you an identity. You're a homosexual or you're a feminist or whatever. That destroyed any sense that these kids had of ethnic identity. That's that's part of the problem. What what types of moves do you suggest? Is there any fixing this or is it just done at this point? Yes, yeah, no, just... no. there's a clear no. fix. Okay. Uh, you have to become a Catholic. <laughs> you have to become a Catholic. Uh, it's not simple. Won't work. I mean, it's, I mean, first of all, yeah, all right, you can't become a Jew because they don't want you to become a Jew. Okay. Uh, the Protestant Church, as I said, has evaporated as a force. If you want to, if you need, uh, just from a purely practical point of view, okay. If you have to choose the identity, this is the identity you need to choose. Okay, there are two reasons. First of all, because, as I said, it still is a legitimate identity that you can use to defend yourself. And St. Louis is proof of that. But secondly, there's a new something, uh, a new spirit is circulating around now. So uh, a friend, an Irish friend of mine sent me a a video by a guy named Morgoth, uh, who's from the way his accent sounds like a Scotsman. Uh, sounds like a Scotsman who became a white boy and then became a kind of neo-pagan. And Morgoth is feeling depressed because he suddenly understands the magnitude of the evil that we are all facing. And you need spiritual help to deal with this crisis. I'm telling you straight up, 
You know, I'm not trying to proselytize anybody. I'm just trying to tell you uh, as someone who's been around for a while that if you want to protect yourself, this is what you've got to do. There is no other viable identity out there anymore. It's gone. They're all gone. I've heard you talk in the past a lot about how um, many things that are considered a political crisis are actually spiritual crises. And it kind of sounds like uh, like you're relaying that message now. I have often said that the the church is the only solace for identity for anybody anymore. And one of the things I have a difficult time conveying to people is the ethical, universal ethics that comes with Christianity. It's the same thing that Catholicism preaches with universal ethics. Isn't that really the only way that we can have any type of universal ethnicity at all? It has to be through the church. I can't think of what else it could possibly be. Is there anything else other than nationalism or the church that could ever provide the, the type of uniform ethnicity that, that we're really talking about here? Right. I did, I did, a, I did an essay. Uh, I, uh, it was called Ethnos Needs Logos. And it was based on a, a week I spent in Guadalajara with a bunch of Cristeros. They were basically the successors of the Cristeros, the movement against the, the communists in Mexico. Every speech ended with Viva Cristo Rey. Okay, well, who's there? David Duke is there. <laughs> why, why, what is David Duke doing here? Uh, I, I, I tried to explain there that these ethnic groups, we were in uh, um, Mexico, okay? When, when the Spaniards came to South and Central America, they discovered all these different ethnic groups, tribes in the state of nature, when they got to Mexico, there was one group called the Aztecs that was basically the dominant ethnic group that has basically enslaved every other group and uh, would march them up the pyramids and cut their hearts out. Okay. Those groups cannot survive anymore on their own. The only instance of this now left in this world is the Yanomamo in the Amazon rainforest. And the Brazilian government has made the noble savage the basis of its policy here no one's allowed to go near these people they are complete savages they kill government agents they eat their own children it's a horrible group of people but they're going to be preserved in this amber of uh, theoretical noble savagism okay that's the only place you'll find it the i mentioned the guarani the jesuits marched into what is now paraguay and act of incredible heroism, uh, basically learned the Guarani language. Not only did they learn it, how to speak to these people, they wrote the Guarani dictionary and the Guarani grammar. There were other ethnic groups there at that time. We don't know who they are because they all disappeared because the Jesuits didn't write down their grammar or their language. This is what I mean. You need this never, you're not going to keep that Yanomamo paradigm. It's like on life support, it's not going to survive. All of these people have to join the human race. That has been the basically the history of the past bloody half millennium of colonialism, you know, where the, uh, the, the, the horror, horrors of English colonialism. But the, the, it, it was. The conquistador and the Franciscan, because you needed the conquistador to stop the Aztecs. This is the movement of history. 
Everyone has to come to some type of meeting with Logos, and then we'll have this universal culture. And I think the purpose of the American empire, which is now collapsing, was to provide the lingua franca, English, and the technology to speak to everyone in the world. That's the moment we're in right now, even at the moment of collapse. Uh, that's a pretty incredible takedown, really. Uh, one, one of the other things in that debate that kind of ties into that, uh, it was Jared Taylor talking about the isolationism of the sub-Saharan African. And one of the things that you often will hear in these types of debates is why is it that sub-Saharan Africa is so far be behind everybody else uh, in terms of technology and in terms of culture, in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure and these kinds of things? My understanding from your answer was that you believe that it's because they didn't have uh, the Catholic Church and uh, the unifying message of the Catholic Church to even begin to do these types of technologies. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I said... I, I when I was in Tanzania, someone handed me a brochure, and the brochure is about coffee, a coffee project, co uh, a collaboration between the Diocese of Mbinga and the Diocese of Würzburg. So you open it up, Diocese of Würzburg, uh, Diocese of Mbinga, founded 1987. Then you turn the page, Diocese of Würzburg, founded uh, 780. Okay, that's over a millennium before, and I'm saying the difference between Germany and Tanzania is a thousand years of Christianity. It's that simple, okay? Now, there's another aspect to this, too. I dealt with this with, uh, I had a symposium at the Catholic uh, Electronic Internet Symposium with the Catholic University of East Africa, where I talked about development in East Africa. There is a problem. There were, they, they did not develop in the same way that other places in the world developed. Some of it, obviously, Christianity has a role to play. Geography has a role to play because they're out. You can't get up the Congo River. You cannot get up 180 miles of rapids and waterfalls. You can never make it up there. And so those people are off in the forest all by themselves until the white man comes up with his steamship. Okay? The problem in East Africa, aside from that, was polygamy. Polygamy held back development in Africa. There's no question about it. This is what I told the seminar at the, uh, the Catholic University of East Africa. The classic example of this is Julius Nerera. Uh, he's, uh, his mother was one of uh, the chief's 13 wives. Uh, Julius converts to Catholicism. He marries, has one wife. And then he says to uh, his brother, his father had 13 wives. He says to his brother, has eight wives. He says to his brother, why do you have eight wives? His brother says, I need him to work on the farm. And the Rary says, why don't you buy a tractor? Now, that is the tragedy of African development in the 20th century in a nutshell, because they did buy tractors. And when the tractor broke down, nobody knew how to fix it. It's not that simple. OK, you can't make up for millennia of polygamy simply by buying a tractor. It's not that simple. And I'm saying that is precisely the problem. Polygamy held back East Africa because when you have a polygamous culture, your children are the workforce. And when your children are the workforce, I guarantee you, you can't build a 747. You're not going to have a sophisticated workforce. It's, uh, it, it's pretty interesting that you say that. Um, probably the thing that's hammered on the most. Uh, with people who uh, see white identity as something more than a social construction, but as a biological reality. 
that's the, the, the part of the world that's harped on absolutely the most is sub-Sahara Africa and those areas. And what, you, what you're saying is, is there's, hey, there's a lot of contributing factors that go into this. This isn't just a whites are smart, blacks are dumb, which is, seems to be the oversimplification uh, that even Jared Taylor was kind of alluding to in, uh, in your debate. Right. And go ahead. Go ahead. Jared, you're only talking to white boys who think the way you do. That's right. the problem. If you were like me, uh, I went, I, last time I was in Nairobi, I gave a lecture to the students at Strathmore Academy. Now, all these guys, they're Catholic. I don't know whether they're all Catholics, but it's a Catholic school. They all show up in their blue blazers and gray pants and ties and white shirts. They all look great. Everybody should have uniforms like that. I give a talk on metaphysics. The, the, the guy who invited me, Bob O'Dare invited me, says, they'll never get that. Don't do that. That's crazy. And I started off by talking about the Indian boy who asked me to prove the existence of God, which I did you know, in India, 16-year-old kid, and they were 16 years old. It was like a challenge to them. Like, you mean to tell me this Hindu boy is smarter than we are? No, no. And they they started asking questions uh, like, so I'm talking about the movement of God's providence in history and how God's providence cannot be rejected. It is the absolute movement of history. And one of the kids raises his hand and says, well, what about free will? Well, wait a minute. This 16-year-old kid is a philosopher. I mean, he's got a sophisticated mind here, can understand immediately the objection to what I just said. Now, all I can say is, what's that got to do with race? Oh, this is the this is the opportunity these people have to move out of the Catholic Church is the vehicle of social advancement in East Africa. If it weren't for the Catholic Church, the place would be completely hopeless. But you, with the Catholic Church, you have prep schools like this, and you got a group of people who are smart. They're smart, and they can get smarter if you put the right material in their minds. One of the things Jared Taylor and uh, American Renaissance often presents as part of their message is that they want complete and total freedom of association. It's my viewpoint that what they're really asking for is a reintroduction of segregation. And I don't believe that that's a moral position for any Christian to take. I wondered what your thoughts were on that as well. I, I, don't, I don't think they, I, first of all, I think that Jared Taylor's position is that he's got a, a good thing going for him. I'm tempted to say racket, but let me, I'm not going to say that word. He's got a good thing going for him. He can get all these white boys together. They can all bitch and moan about how bad things are. I, I he, they have no, don't have a, they don't have a snowball's chance in hell of affecting any policy. And the point, I think he knows that he knows he can't affect any policy, any changes. He's just there to provide little meetings. He's going to have a meeting someplace. He announced it in Tennessee or someplace like that, all the white boys will get together and they'll all cry on each other's shoulders and, and feel better about it. That's what's going on here. You're, you're leading people astray. You're leading them out of the real world into a never, never land where they're only going to get hurt if they act on what they're doing. Jared Taylor is also an atheist. Is he not? I, I, he's certainly materialist. Yeah, I think he's certainly I, materialist. I believe I believe that uh, that he is an atheist, and every argument that he make makes is from a secular standpoint. One of the things about race realists that, when I say race realism, what I refer to as my definition is somebody who believes that uh, 
the biological um the biological differences between races are such that some are superior or inferior to others i just i simply reject that uh, uh categorically reject that as being uh being an uh, a truth and this is this is my definition when i say race realism and i think that race realists themselves uh, they, they have attached themselves to this identity in such a way that they just really can't let go of it. They can't let go of it. And I see that as an entryway towards secularism. Uh, most of the people I talk to who embrace this ideology are not Christians. All of the people I spent the evening with watching that debate between you and Jared Taylor, the person who owned that channel, he's a secularist. And I think that that speaks volumes as to why this ideology now exists is due to this secular mindset. Is that something that you would agree with, or do you yeah, think I'm way off base? Absolutely. I told you, a, a white boy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. <laughs> and and the, the point of this is that once you stop going to church, uh, even, even the truncated Protestant version of, of Christianity, you lose contact with Logos. You know, and, and once you lose contact with Logos, you're very vulnerable to these ideologies. And the ideology is basically social Darwinism. That's where it came from. And social Darwinism is a form of biological materialism. That's what Jared is. It's biological materialism. You are a function of your DNA. Your behavior is determined by your DNA. Well, we back back up a little bit. This it starts off, the brain is just this muscle. And the brain, there's no mind, no difference between brain and mind. And everything you feel is little balls bumping into each other. They're called atoms, okay, but they're little balls. And when, when you're happy, what you're really saying is they're bumping really fast. And when you're sad, they're just kind of going like this, you know what I mean? You're a complete, completely determined by those little balls bumping into each other. Well, okay, if you're, if you're completely determined by that, then what you just said was completely determined by those little balls bumping into each other, which means I don't have to take it seriously. <laughs> you just refuted your own doctrine here. So the, the very axiom from which they come at this is flawed right from the gate. I tend to agree that that's true. I did want you, we, we don't have too much uh, uh, time left here, but I did, I did want to see if you could expand on the idea. I've heard a lot about Logos and Jordan Peterson has talked even about the idea of Logos. And I wondered if you could expand on exactly what Logos is. There's a, there's a large secular uh, uh, viewership that this channel has. And I wondered if you could flesh that out. I know it's complex, but Yes, uh, uh, logos is the Greek word for speech or word. And uh, the problem is that we don't have a word as sophisticated as logos, so I have to use it, uh, that word. I mean, the classic example is the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, which is four of the most important sentences ever written, the turning point of human history, where it's translated in English, in the beginning there was the word, the word was with God, uh, the word was God. Okay, now, that doesn't mean anything. You can read that forever and you'll never understand. And every European language says the same thing. In principio erat verbum, it's the same thing. Am anfang vadas vor, same thing. Because none of those uh, languages have a word as sophisticated as logos. Logos is speech. It is rationality. It is the order of the universe. And it's God. 
And that was the turning point in human history. When St. John said, Logos is God. He took the whole tradition of Greek thought and he baptized it and ma married it with the tradition of Hebrew uh, prophecy. The Hebrews had a history without philosophy. The Greeks had philosophy without history. And you put them two together and you got Christianity. And that has been the engine of Logos throughout history. That's what I'm talking about here. We are creatures of Logos because we were created by the God who is Logos. And our main characteristic is they have the ability to speak and to talk to each other. We have little images here on screens and we're, the mouth is flapping and, and sounds are coming out. And you understand what I'm saying. And, and you say something back to me and I understand you understood and we're going back and forth. And this is what it means to be a human being. And this is what we have to get back to as the basis of our way forward through this perilous time that we're in. And then uh, one, one other thing, I know that you've kind of been a little bit on tour with what's going on in Afghanistan. You seem to have kind of really kept up on that. And uh, for, for maybe just the last five or 10 minutes of the show, uh, I know we've kind of gotten a little off track here uh, from the debate breakdown, but I'd like to get what your takes are on that currently and what's going on there. Yes. Uh, what we have now is a civil war. The civil war broke out uh, with the bombing at the gates of the uh, Hamid Karzai airport that killed those 13 servicemen. So before that, all of the Islamic world basically uh, saw America as the great Satan. And in uh, the mirror image of what happened with the Russians, they all united in Afghanistan to drive the great Satan, the Americans out of Afghanistan. They succeeded. And usually it takes a little bit of time. This took about two days before the civil war broke out. So the people who are responsible for the suicide bombing are ISIS-K or Kan Kandahar. Uh, I think that's what K stands for, the other city in, uh, in, Af in Afghanistan. The Talibs, the Taliban are largely Pashtun. They are Afghanistan nationalist, and uh, they are... Uh, they are what they are, but I mean, I think you can work with the Taliban. I think the United States is working with the Taliban. ISIS are, are terrorists. And we saw what they did uh, when they were in Syria. The man who stopped ISIS was General Soleimani, and Donald Trump killed Soleimani, okay, in one of the stupidest and most immoral acts of his presidency. So now what's going to happen is all those people are going to fall apart. Every successful revolution leads to a civil war. And now they're going to be fighting with each other. And Afghanistan may disintegrate into complete anarchy uh, of the same sort that is now existing in Libya. That's the short term. I think we, we can expect anarchy and uh, civil war. The long term is that someone is going to shake out one way or the other. I suspect the Taliban will take control. They took control. They drove ISIS out once. And then they're going to be faced with the fact of, OK, what do we do now? We're going to have to govern this country. And at that point, we're talking about Logos. OK, you're going to have to return to Logos because the Logos is the basis of everything that we're doing. And the man who understands this, I think, really well is the former president of Iran, uh, President Ahmadinejad, who has sees what happens. OK, you had the simple, similar thing in Iran. 1979, you have a revolution. The revolution, the attempt to drive out the great Satan, unites everyone, and then suddenly when he's gone, everything starts to fall apart. And what you have, the fault line in, Af in Iran, 
is basically the Persian nationalist versus the Islamic internationalist. And that's working itself out in a more peaceful fashion, but it's got to work itself out. And I think uh, Ahmed, uh, Ahmadinejad understands that the real meaning of, of history is that God can use something evil like the American empire and bring about good through the promotion of Logos. And the primary way America promoted Logos was the spread of the English language throughout the world. So we now have the technology. We're using it right now. We have the language. And all we need is the philosophical framework. And I tried to provide that in Logos Rising. So I think we're once once the dust settles and these the, the anarchy, the revolution, the civil war is uh, uh, resolved, we're going to have the big picture of basically coming up with a global consciousness uh, so that we can all get along together. Gotcha. I appreciate that takedown. I'm going to go ahead and, and put up some questions. Um, we only wanted to bring you on for an hour. I didn't want to take up too much of your time tonight. I really appreciated you making the time to come back on. Uh, this is from uh, Baya Ray, and he says, is liberalism, as well as its effect on modern Christianity, an attempt to rebuild the Tower of Babel, and should such a rebuilding be opposed at all costs? Uh, that's uh, <laughs> not the way I would put it, okay? Uh, I mean, you're taking a biblical paradigm, and it's always dangerous to apply a biblical paradigm to... Uh, a current situation. Obviously, the Bible is there so that we apply it to current situations, but uh, I'm not sure I would say that that's what it is. Are we trying to... What we had was an empire that was trying to unite people under a false, uh, a false principle. And to that extent, I agree with the Tower of Babel imagery. If you want to do away with these uh, ethnic differences simply by force or by some trickery, it's not going to work. And that's why the American empire failed. It had a completely inadequate philosophy that simply could not inspire any loyalty. Not even in the United States could it supply uh, uh, loyalty, especially when it got into its manic phase, like uh, transgenderism and stuff like that, where you have to pretend that that fat Jew from Pennsylvania is a woman. It's not going to work. And I think that's part of the problem here. You unmute. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, my wife's actually asking, uh, what is the solution to dealing with groups like Black Lives Matter and programs like critical race theory if black Americans believe in the black versus white dialectic? Yeah, okay. First of all, you have to expose Black Lives Matter as a Jewish operation. It's always been it's it's a continuation of the NAACP. Uh, Jews trying to create race war in the United States of America. It's no different. The only difference is the Jew, the different Jew. It's George Soros giving $33 million to Black Lives Matter to foment race war. You have to explain that. Also, you have to explain George Soros uh, and the Soros prosecutors who are also exacerbating the race issue. People like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia won't prosecute black criminality. Uh, uh, Kim Fox, uh, Kim Gardner in St. Louis. I could go on and on and on. These people have to be exposed as agents of uh, a subversive uh, political movement. Okay. Now, when they get involved in criminal activity, they also have to be prosecuted as criminals. So if they set your house on fire, they have to be charged with arson. 
And, and that means we have to deal with the problem of the Soros prosecutor because they don't do that. Okay. Secondly, critical race theory is a is the dominant literary critical theory at the university right now. Uh, it succeeded. Uh, uh, I I deal with this in my book on beauty. Uh, it's it's wrong for all the reasons we've been talking about tonight. The same reason that Jared Taylor is wrong. Critical race theory is wrong. They believe in the same thing. They believe that there is your your magical nose here determines how you think. This is preposterous. Critical race theory is also Jewish. It came from the Frankfurt School. This has to be exposed. And what we need is some type of movement to, so that the American people can regain control of their institutions. Okay, now I, people attack me. Uh, well, what are you saying? I, let, we can start with very practical uh, steps. The first practical step, I think, would be uh, no dual citizen should be allowed to have any uh, political office in the United States of America. This would immediately eliminate the influence of the, the Israel lobby. We have to deal with this problem. That's a way to deal with it. And I think we've gained broad, widespread report. This is the type of steps that we need to take to basically back America away from this artificially created black and white confrontation. Uh, that's a that's actually a practical solution to more problems than just the dual citizenship with Israel. It's probably unwise to allow people who have uh, sovereignty with other nations to ever hold uh, public office here. That seems to me to be a bad idea universally, no matter what. That's right. Uh, it, should be, it should be made illegal immediately. That yeah. would be a great first step. Yep, I agree. Uh, here's another question for you, Dr. Jones. Uh, I agree that the loss of the Irish language was a severe blow to Gaelic identity. But how can the Irish identity be gone? Are Irishmen Englishmen now? Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> They're worse than Englishmen. <laughs> I, have an, I have an English friend who debated, engaged in a debate on abortion in Dublin. He said the Irish are much worse than the English now because it's corruptio optimi pessimi, because they abandoned the Catholic faith. And they're now being punished for it. What do I mean they abandoned the Catholic faith? The abortion referendum, the gay marriage referendum. They have completely gone over to this, uh, to this wicked ideology, and they are going to be punished for abandoning the Catholic faith. So uh, my friend Terry O'Reardon uh, is a Gaelic speaker. He teaches Gaelic. He teaches the Irish language. He told me that it did have a bad effect on Irish identity, and I, th I think he's right. That they were more uh, because my 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 Irish forebears did not speak Irish; they all spoke English. And when they came to America, they thought they had an advantage because they didn't have to learn a new language the way the Poles and the Italians and the Germans did. But it did have uh, an, an effect on their identity. I think that's absolutely true. I think it's undeniable. And someone like Terry O'Reardon could give you the details in the way that I can't about how that happened. Uh, I have a another one here. Uh, this is this is pretty controversial at the moment. I understand that you know, kind of everybody knows that a lot of the viewpoints that you have are highly controversial. The the crucible tends to try to stay as neutral as possible. We don't necessarily endorse what Mr. Jones is saying. We don't necessarily not endorse it. We just try to stay neutral as a platform. This question came up. Can you ask E. Michael Jones about his stat stance on the jab? And I'm guessing that he's referring to the COVID nineteen vaccine. Yes. yes. Uh, yes, uh, 
I think that uh, the, the vaccine is biological warfare being waged against the entire human race. When you, it, it was based on a biological weapon. And I think we're in the middle of one of the greatest crises in human history right now, because this COVID uh, uh, pandemic is being used to abrogate uh, centuries of achievement when it comes to representative government and the protection of human rights. People are being subjected to all sorts of immoral pressures to take a vaccine in spite of all of the evidence that is mounting daily of all of the bad effects, the bad side effects that this thing has. So if you're asking me for my advice, don't get vaccinated. Don't do it. No job is worth ruining your health for. No job is worth dying for. And it's up to us. We have to see this as biological warfare, biological, psychological warfare. And we have to do everything within our power to resist what's going on. Um, understanding right now in the current political climate um, that these kinds of disclaimers are absolutely necessary. Uh, YouTube algorithms and whatnot, they, they tend to pick up on things that they consider controversial or misinformation. Uh, we can't endorse what these views are and nor do we. Uh, but we do, did want to hear exactly what you had to say on that, Dr. Jones, and I appreciate you speaking to it. And I appreciate your uh, giving me the ability to say it and to give yeah. this whole discussion, have this whole discussion. Absolutely. The, uh, the last three minutes, if you could take uh, your time and kind of shill yourself a little bit, shill your books, we're going to make sure to put a lot of links up to, uh, to where people can buy your books and buy Do your you stuff. Have, what happened to the copy of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit? Is that still here? Do we take that? Oh, give, me, give, me, give, me, give me some of those books. I'll, I'll wave the books around. We got a bunch of them over there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the, the, the main important point is you go to fidelitypress.org or you can go to culturewars.com. Fidelitypress.org, culturewars.com. That's the only place you can get these books. You can get an oldie but goodie here. Uh, is Notre Dame still Catholic? If you want to find out what happened to your Catholic faith and the intellectual life. Uh, Monsters from the Id, another oldie but goodie about horror movies and why sexual revolution leads to horror. Uh, the Slaughter of Cities, a book I did on ethnic cleansing, uh, urban renewal is ethnic cleansing, a book on the destruction of Catholic neighborhoods, the deliberate destruction of Catholic neighborhoods and the consequences that had for the transmission of the faith. Barren metal, I can hardly lift this damn thing. It's, uh, it's great for holding doors open and pressing flowers. It's 1,800 pages of, I'm sorry, 1,400 pages of the history of economics as the conflict between labor and usury. Economics is moral science. It's not pseudophysics, okay? Adam Smith, the seminal economic thinker in England, was, was hired to teach moral philosophy. This book brings that back to its roots. This is moral philosophy here. And then we have uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. This is the first edition. We have the three-volume edition, second edition out now. Uh, much a, 600 pages of new material. We have books by other authors here. Uh, David Wemhoff's book uh, for sale here. John Courtney Murray, uh, uh, Time, Life, and the American Proposition. How the CIA Tried to Change Church Teaching at Vatican II, an important book. We have shorter books here. Uh, how much time do we have here? 
Oh, you, 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 you have as, as much as you want or as little as you want. <laughs> Ballet parking comes with a video about uh, the Nutcracker as a counter-revolutionary act. Um, <laughs> the I talked about Africa. This is my biography of Julius Nyerere, the first president of Africa. The broken pump in Tanzania explains what, why development did not take place in Africa as a this is the essential uh, thing you need to to counteract the racial myths that people like Jared Taylor uh, circulate. Dr. Jones, before before you head out, um, a couple of questions just just kind of flooded in. Uh, do you mind taking just just one yeah, or two? Yeah, sure, okay. sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, do you still believe race is an optical illusion, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence Mr. Taylor presented to you? Also, why talk of the Jews? if race isn't real jews first of all jews are not a race okay they are they're, they are not semites they are a turkic people so there's no dialogical connection between the jews and moses okay they're not the children of moses but, but that that's the point of my book the jewish revolutionary spirit because i'm saying there is by god doesn't need biological links to bring about what he did this is what the Jews said to Jesus Christ. We're the seed of Abraham. We have special DNA. Jesus Christ laughed at them when they said that. The, uh, we are the children of Moses. We, the baptized, are the children of Moses. That is the whole point of my book about the Jews and the refutation of, of that, uh, I, that ridiculous racial ideology that goes all the way back to the Jews who killed Christ. Okay, do I believe, what, do, what am I supposed to believe? Do, do I still believe race is real? Do you mean, yeah. to, are you talking about your nose or your idea? Right, well, what, what his idea, what his overarching idea is, is he would like you to speak on, uh, because you speak out about uh, Jews so often, uh, if, if you still reject race as a category, but I think that you kind of summarized that you don't believe that Jewishness is a race, but no. rather a religious institution. Jewish identity, Jewish identity is based on the rejection of Logos. It's that simple. That's the only coherent explanation of Jewish identity. Now, if you want to play the race card, I'm going to talk about Oswald Rufeisen. This is a Jew. He's in Poland. He's working for the SS. He's really a double agent. He has to go into hiding. He becomes a Catholic, uh, Catholic becomes baptized. He then becomes a Catholic priest. The war is over. Israel becomes a state. He's going to go to Israel. He goes to Israel and he asks for Jewish Israeli citizenship and they turn him down. Well, wait a minute. I thought you said it was race. His mother's Jewish, right? He's got Jewish DNA. What's the problem? Well, it turns out, according to the Supreme Court of Israel, that when uh, that water of baptism trickles across your forehead, it changes your DNA. Oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. No, we can't say that, can we? No, what it does is basically ruin their whole racial theory. They don't believe in race. If you get baptized, you're not a Jew. Now, I said just said water cannot change your DNA. So what you're really saying is you don't believe in DNA. The Jews don't believe in this DNA myth. When a push comes to shove, the only thing they believe in is rejection of Logos. And that's their identity. This question came in. Uh, you claim Irish Americans do not exist. I agree. Irish Americans are not Irish, but they are members of the Gaelic race. They have a unique culture. How can you claim that they are extinct? 
why did I say I the Irish Americans? I'm half <laughs> Irish American. My do I exist? <laughs> Is this an illusion here? I never said that. I said Irish Americans are an ethnic group. Okay, now this is complicated for the white boys out there. So take it, you know, I'm going to take it slow for the white boys. All right. You come over from your grandfather came from Ireland. Okay. He's Irish. Okay. He had children over here. They are Irish Americans. Okay. Uh, they had children and I'm one of them. And they married my Irish father, married a German woman. So I'm half Irish and half German. At this point, the triple melting pot kicks in and religion becomes the source of your identity. So it's three ethnic groups, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. Does that, does that make, does that answer that question? I think it answers it as well as it can be answered, to be honest with you. Uh, there was one more here. It's kind of a curveball question. How does uh, uh, MJ reconcile the millions of Christians mass murdered by the Catholic church? What? What are yeah, you I talking don't... about? Hey, are you are you reading chick pamphlets? Chick pam. <laughs> what are these millions of people murdered by the Catholic Church? Yeah, what are know. you talking about? <laughs> What's your source, buddy? <laughs> I don't know myself, Doctor Jones. Uh, we're gonna wrap the stream up. I really appreciate your time tonight. It was wonderful to talk to you. And I hope you have a, a good one. We're going to get those links down uh, that uh, that you had mentioned uh, so that people can find your work. And I uh, hope to see you again down the road. Thank you. And thank you for this very frank and enlightening discussion. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good one. So <clears throat> it's always something else to talk to, uh, <laughs> talk to E. Michael Jones or Jay Dyer or any of these guys. Uh, sometimes you run into people who you know are so much smarter than you that all you can really do is just kind of sit there and listen to what they have to say. Um, and, uh, and some of these guys are just kind of, kind of next level. Um, I, the crucible doesn't endorse, uh, any specific views, but what we do try to do is create a platform, uh, where what you might consider people with controversial views from both sides can come on and they can kind of have it out. And so um, uh, kind of in closing, uh, that was something that I wanted to, uh, to get out there. Uh, what's your conclusion on race BPF? I largely agree that, uh, that Dr. Jones is correct. So I'm a, I'm a blood sport debater. Um, you know, I, I just, I love it. Um, I always, you know, I've, I've probably always loved debating, but I really like to mix it up with people. And uh, one of the things that I've, I've mixed it up with more than anything is with uh, transgenders on the trans issue. I believe it's one of the most important issues of our of our time, if not the most important issue, because it's a delineation point between reality and non-reality. And if we can't get that delineation point down, uh, the consequences are going to be absolutely dire in ways you can't even understand. But one of the things I realized in doing all the prep work for these debates and going at it in these debates is that gender is just a construction of the mind. It's nonsense. Okay. Sex is not nonsense. It's a biological reality. And that's why the delineation point between man and woman has got to exist. It has to, because one's real and one isn't real. Okay. It's not that there's uh, uh, in my viewpoint, trans who are having issues. I don't believe that transgenderism exists as anything other than uh, a construction 
of non-reality. So it resonates with me very deeply when guys like E. Michael Jones explain race in that exact same way. I don't think you should be able to throw black people out of the church or, uh, or any of this kind of nonsense. I think it's nonsense on its face. And I think that it's another one of those types of categories of the mind and that you should probably be very, very careful about giving too much credit to these categories of the mind or else you're going to end up trapped by what he calls, you know, these white boys. And what he's, what I think he's really referencing there, this is my take on it. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but I think what he's really trying to reference there is these younger kids who've kind of just been beaten over their head uh, for the last 20 years on race and race and race and race and race. And so they're looking for some kind of identity, even if it doesn't exist. And you'll see with transgenderism is kind of the same story arc, right? Always looking for an identity, even if it doesn't exist. And that is really, you've got to be very careful with that. Very, very careful. Uh, thanks, BPF. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, BPF is an anti-globalist. Uh, yeah, very staunch nationalist. Um, so this, the now I'm kind of explaining why I have this take and why E. Michael Jones and his take really resonated so deeply with me. Uh, when I started to read his work and listen to what he had to say, I don't agree with him on everything. Uh, not at all. But I do think that what he's talking about as far as race being a product of the mind is easy to argue that it's absolutely true and it's easy to demonstrate. It just is really easy to demonstrate. So um, being Protestants, a fake identity, it's why the West died, but Catholicism birthed it and will resurrect it. Well, I'm an Orthodox, at least an Orthodox in training. And um, uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that or not, but I don't have enough information to uh, to refute it. Um, my co-host isn't here tonight, Pedro. He's more of a religious historian, and it's much better for him to uh, kind of field those questions. Uh, or if I have an Orthodox brother on, I'm really just kind of in my beginning phases of Orthodoxy. So. Uh, Protestants stole the nation from the Catholic Church, then lost them to the Antichrist, Freemason, and Jews under their watch. Well, I don't know about that, but I can tell you this for sure. For sure, the Catholic, or not the Catholic, but the Protestant Church is completely and totally divided. There is no church. There is no centralized church, and there's no centralized identity. And because there's no hierarchy, there's no defense mechanism anywhere. Uh, without that defense mechanism, which is uh, the ability to do collective action, the ability for people to get together through the church, uh, we're, we're lost. So whether or not it's Catholicism or it's Orthodoxy, there has to be some type of church hierarchy, period. That's, uh, that's my take on that. I don't think that other than, I don't think nationalism can be secular anyway. Uh, I definitely think that there has to be a form of universal ethics. And I think that Christian ethics are the best universal form of deontology that there is. Uh, Protestantism is an excuse to break moral law and cop out of doing good works. Again, I don't know if, uh, if I completely agree with that, but that was just kind of my breakdown session of that with E. Michael Jones and his debate. The debate is excellent. Uh, even if you're a person who disagrees with every single thing E. Michael Jones says and Jared Taylor, the person he debated with, um, they're, they're both clearly men who have really thought these issues out and it's really worth your time to go check that debate out. Um, and uh, and listen to what they have to say, because uh, it's kind of amazing. I know that he has some controversial views. Again, we don't we don't uh, endorse any of those views, but we do want to hear them. 
So you guys all have yourself a great night. Uh, thank you so much for coming and spending uh, the last hour with me interviewing E. Michael Jones. We have a bunch of really cool debates coming up. Saturday, uh, there will be a debate followed by an interview with JF. JF has come and debated on this channel before. We have a lot of in-depth questions that we want to ask him as we've been researching the various things that he said. Uh, so I hope that all of you will come and visit us for that. And uh, with that, we're going to uh, to get out of here.